see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you, and I think to myself. Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. Welcome to Lance Odit. Lance is the executive director of Friends of Pando. And I just happen to love Pando. Just going to ask Lance what a Pando forest is. All right. Well, first of all, thank you all for having me, Steve and Linda. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk to some local folks. Um, yeah. So what is the Pando tree? Uh, Pando is an aspen clone that spans 106 acres, features over an estimated 47,000 genetically identical stems, and it's constantly regenerating itself through this hormone cycle related to auxin and cytokinin. Age estimates, something like 9,000 years at least, that this aspen got going started self-replicating and spreading out over the land. Pando is the largest tree by weight and landmass both. And while the systems to uh, measure superlative trees vary, uh, for example, champion trees are measured by uh, species. In this case, Pando is also the largest aspen clone that we know of. Of course, folks still zero in on the General Sherman because it's the largest single stem tree by volume. But as I shared to start there, those systems vary wildly throughout the U.S. and the world. So without a doubt, Pando is the largest tree by weight and by landmass. Both. There is no uh, system that you can measure uh, Pando compared to other big trees. So it's the largest tree in the world. And indeed, that's what we say at Friends of Pando because it is. Wow. So it's correct to call it Pando tree, not Pando forest. Yeah. Boy, there's a lot of things that go on with that. We tend to use the word tree because the Pando operates quite like a single tree in your yard would. It sends out leaves. It coordinates energy, defense, and regeneration across its entire expanse. And then in fall, it'll lose all of its leaves pretty much simultaneously across the expanse. It's so large, this process takes weeks, but all those signals happen just like a single tree in your yard, except that it's happening across 106 acres. And so we, most folks refer to it as the Pando tree because humans don't trust clones. They don't like the word clone. They don't understand what a clone tree is in most cases. So folks just call it the Pando tree where grove is significantly smaller, typically a small collection of trees. Uh, Pando is surrounded by lots of other trees. And so most folks don't say forest. That's good to know. So Lance, how did you get involved with the Pando tree and with your art and photography. 
You know, photography has always been part of my creative repertoire, but in 20, uh, let's see, 2017, me and my wife had moved to Seattle. We moved from Austin. We met in Austin. I'm originally from rural Ohio, southwestern Ohio, Germantown, Monroe, Middletown area. And we'd moved from Austin, Texas, where tree culture is not all that great. And we'd gone to visit all these superlative trees on the trip up to Seattle. And then in 2016, I found out that uh, I had a chronic form of blood cancer, won the genetic lottery. And so I'm undergoing all these treatments and things. But, you know, I'm a designer by trade, background in human factors, human computer interaction had background in visual art, performance art, led a publishing company for six years. But when I was sick, I was just exhausted all the time. But the one thing I could do is I could take out my fancy new smartphone camera and I could go for short walks in these magnificent old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest. And so I started photographing. I started with photography again. It was the one thing in my creative repertoire that I could I could do when I was sick where I couldn't really write or concentrate, still struggle with that with a little bit of chemo brain today, but just kind of got back into photography, which I had done now looking back at my archives my entire life, but had done seriously, even going back to when I was 17 or 18 years old, I just never really thought of it the way that I do now. And so started photographing trees when I got well from cancer treatments uh, what i have is persistent it never goes away but well enough that i no longer required treatment i decided to go on this road trip and just go see all those superlative trees of the west and panda was one of those i visited redwood i visited sequoia i've been to joshua tree went back to joshua tree went up to ancient bristlecone pine forest out in inyo national forest went to great basin uh, National Park, which is there in the St. Mountains in Nevada, and then visited Pando, continued the trip from there. But along that journey of about eight months, you know, I discovered whitebark pine, which is a five-needle bristlecone or five-needle pines as well. And um, coming out of that, I was like, well, gosh, you know, I don't feel like I've been a very useful human being. Is there any use of any of these photos I've been taking of all this old growth and high mountain stuff and everything? And um, I started reaching out to conservation groups and then got connected up with a couple of different folks. And before you know it, you know, I'm out documenting forest conservation work, documenting these superlative trees all over the West. Your work documenting the endangered pando tree has appeared in several publications, has it not? Yes. Yeah. Uh, going back to 2018, I think Discover Magazine was the first publication that published any of my work related to Pando and its homeland. And by the way, I'm so, so sorry to hear you have cancer. I'm glad that photography has and art has been helpful to you. Ah, it's a middle-aged speeding ticket. Um, I'm fortunate that my base of operations is one of the best places in the world to have blood cancer, and mm -hmm. um, I'm very grateful for that. And indeed, it it certainly put a priority on what I thought was um, to be doing important work. I appreciate that. And uh, if there's any listeners out there, you know, um, 
there's a lot of really wonderful medicines and strategies that we have now. You know, a lot of folks don't know one in four people live with cancer. And so if you're in a room full of four, you know, with four people, one of them is probably living with some form of cancer. And so I just feel fortunate that I had great medical care and some of the best medicines for what I have in the world, you know, being based out of the Pacific Northwest. Sure, that's that's good. And that's a positive message to send our listeners as well who are struggling with cancers. We, we have interviewed different artists who have those battles. I'm yeah. Yeah, Lance. So why? Why? I mean, you you named a, a who's who of all the all the really really cool trees around. Mm-hmm. Why the aspen? Why the panda? Um, you know, earlier on, I didn't really think about panda the way that I do now. Of course, now I've been working on panda related issues for working on seven years. Um, I think what really struck me about Pando is the first time that I visited it, it, I was still in recovery. And what I found with Pando that was really striking, because at the time, you know, the prevailing wisdom was it was dying or dead or breaking apart. And of course, we have more research and better insights on those questions today, which I'm sure you and your listeners would, would enjoy hearing more about. But despite all the work that I do in forest conservation, I'm not a tree hugger type, a practical conservation. And the thing with Pando that I noticed was is at the time, I didn't really have the words for it, but I was looking at all the ways that Pando is dealing with adversity, disease, uh, things going on in the tree. And while at the immediate moment that I was experiencing that, I didn't think of it at the time, but over time, the way that Pando thrives on adversity and reinvents itself again and again over time really kind of became an exemplary metaphor for the work I had to do uh, as a human being, not only to, to be giving back in community using my creative talents and my ability to bring folks together, but also just in terms of, you know, when you're dealing with those times of adversity, you you do often have to reinvent yourself from whole cloth and pando has done that multiple times over its lifespan and i think that became a really compelling metaphor or analogy for what not only i knew that i had to do to build a new life coming out of a really devastating sort of cancer diagnosis and treatment period it was like almost a year to doing things to remark and document and admire and appreciate these these trees that really change a lot of what we know about the world. I mean, Pando is a tree that kind of redefines tree. You know, some people don't even think we should say tree. They think we should say clone, but of course humans don't appreciate clones. We have whole cultures and societies that are against duplicates, right? And so that this tree is operating on this scale, that it thrives on adversity, that it's able to reimagine itself, reinvent itself again and again and again, became more and more compelling over time, the more time I spent with it. And even today, I mean, mind you, I've done the Panda photographic survey, lead work on that, film work, drone work, mapping. I see something new in Pando every time I visit, even now. And, and that's a testament to what we're really looking at what we're seeing, what we're thinking about when we think about a tree operating on this scale. Do you think that photographers have played a vital role in forest conservation through the years? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, since the begin, you know, you go back not only photography, but um, unique forms of photography, like 180 degree photography or 360 photography. William Henry Talbot Fox's, one of his most famous early photos is a picture of an oak tree in winter. And you go, well, why did they do that? And it was like, well, it was the, it's a static subject. Those early cameras didn't have exposure and speed controls. And so they would often photograph trees and they would do so as part of these land management exercises. These private landholders kind of wanted to know, what do I have on my property? What can I sell? What's good? What's useful? Uh, Carleton Watkins, a uh, famous photographer of the West, his early work doing stereographic images helped secure preservation for Yosemite that we have today. I would add that some of his early work was also used in some of the first environmental, like I want to say the time there was a different term for it, but basically he had photographed Hydromining, you know, using water hoses to mine resources. And of course, that spoiled the water. And because of his photographs, that company ended up paying fines and it had to halt their operations. The, the first real photo book is Anna Adkins, um, her cyanotypes. And that's not really trees, but there again, you have people doing work with plants. Charles Jones, to me, his work. Um, which was almost lost to history. He's doing things that you later see folks like Weston do with his famous pepper number four, but 35 years before that, uh, Carl Blossfeld is there uh, gathering these plant samples to teach his students. George Alexander Grant, the first National Park Service uh, photographer, he's out there photographing these places such as Mariposa Grove. Pretty much every major art movement in photography and even in visual art going back to really the 1880s trees figure in almost every art movement. Now, how do you have the dotist and the surrealist and the constructivist and, you know, all the way up to the 80s and 90s? Uh, how do you have that in every major art movement, there's some piece that involves trees or a focus on trees? Diana Arbus has a photo of a Christmas tree again and again and again. It just seems to be a ubiquitous subject in the history of photography and it shows up again and again. And so the foundation of the Forest Service itself, you look at the records for different, uh, you know, we work, Friends of Pando is an official partner at Official Lake National Forest. But if you look at the records for almost every national forest that we have, somewhere in there is a photo of those trees or a drawing of those trees, something about those trees and the lands they protect and the wildlife that they sustain plays a role. And so in that way, you could argue that art is central to conservation and has been for a long time. I, I think that's a good argument. Lance, you mentioned that you use 360 degrees camera cameras. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? 360 degree cameras are cameras that have multiple lenses that can shoot in every direction simultaneously, such that you end up with like an immersive photo. 180 degree photography has been around and that's where you'd have two lenses, one looking to the left or right. For a long time, Carleton Watkins did 180 photography way back 1840s, 1850s. Uh, today, 360 degree cameras 
you know, are used in all types of applications in agriculture, commerce, architecture, construction. But I also think they have a really important role to play in conservation because unlike any other photo, you're getting the whole image of a given location in that in that time and space. Um, I would add for your listeners, you want to make a distinction between 360 and panorama. Panorama is an image that sort of can take a sort of 180 in a circle. 360 degrees takes a still image of an entire 360 degree sphere around the camera at the moment that you trigger the camera. Oh, wow. So how do you... I'm vi- I can't wrap my mind about around how you would see that as a print or, you know what I'm asking? What's that look like? What does it look like? Yeah, well, how um, do you look at it? You, you and your listeners, you could go to friendsofpando.org slash explore pando. Okay. When you scroll down into the page, you can explore any area. You can look at those photos on your desktop or mobile device or a VR headset. In terms of creating prints, actually, there are 360-degree projectors that you can use and, of course, have been successfully used. I think in Las Vegas, there's a place called Area 15. In more recent pop culture history, you have the, the, the sort of virtual Van Gogh, and they do some 360 projections. In terms of making a physical print, it is possible. Uh, in fact, James Baylog did some work. Really in 180, but he demonstrated how you could kind of stitch images together to create an immersive effect like 2D images. Um, You could absolutely cut a 360 picture in half and, and print it out sort of linearly. But frankly, the, 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 the emphasis is on immersion. It's on realness in a way that we don't typically associate with art or photography in general, which is usually a 2D flat plane. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's great. We can look on the website. So I understand, and it's fall, so leaves are changing colors. Um, a friend of mine was telling me up in Logan Canyon in um, somewhere near Salt Lake City, um, there's some Aspen groups um, that are orange. And Mm -hmm. I I guess that leads to the question of, so how do you know the different, I'll I'll use the word you told me not to use, um, clonal. How do you know one clonal cluster cluster from another? There's a couple of ways. You You can look at things like color variation. Pando was discovered, in fact, because its outline was visible from other nearby clones. And I wanna say something here just for you and your listeners. There's no problem with saying that Pando is a clone. There's also nothing wrong with saying Pando is a tree. We have to take care of Pando because it is a tree. But when folks focus on clone, they're immediately lost. They don't understand the relationship between clone and tree. So in some ways, it's good to think about Pando as a clone. It helps us understand how we might approach it for example, as it relates to disease, things like that. But in other ways, it's better to approach Pando as a tree because it is a tree. So we're gonna use plant methods related to the care and understanding of trees that that's gonna help us take care of Pando. Early on, uh, Pando's outline was visible through aerial observation. That was Burton Barnes and Jerry Kemperman. They published the first observations and therefore the discovery of Pando in 1976. And they were able to do that because they were in a plane and they were doing aerial observation. They did aerial photography. So the discovery of Pando starts with innovations 
in aerial photography. Um, we take that for granted today, but aerial photography methods weren't really mastered until World War II. And so Burton Barnes, he's starting his work in Aspen Ecology in the 50s and 60s. And one of the very first and important applications of aerial photography we have is discovering a tree that just redefines everything we think a tree is or can be. And so Barnes and Kemperman, they they looked at what they thought to be a clone based on the fact that Pando's outline is visible. So they had a rough sketch of here's the outline, right? And then they started doing what are called morphological studies. They looked at leaf patterns, root patterns, things like that, looked at its flowering patterns. Aspen trees are dioecious. That means they're either male or female. Pando is male. It produces pollen. So they could differentiate Pando from surrounding uh, clonal colonies. But then it took almost another, what, 22 years and advances in genetic research. And in 2008, a team led by Jennifer DeWoody working with uh, Jennifer DeWoody of the Forest Service, uh, Karen Mock, Utah State University, Valerie Hipkins, and Carol Rowe did painstaking genetic research and, in fact, proved that Pando was a clone, a tree operating as a single organism, balancing energy production, defense, and regeneration across about 106 acres. And so really in that way, we only know of Pando. We only verified Pando through genetic testing 14, 15 years ago. And that way it's a recent discovery. Wow. The, the colors in leaves are the tannins left over, right? Leaf color, if you're talking about when the leaf change, like what makes them different in fall? Right. So there is broad variation. For example, there's a another clone tree near Pando whose leaves are red. That has to do with phytochemicals, uh, things that are in the leaves themselves. And so with Pando, the reason we could see the outline, the reason it was discovered is that the smaller aspen clones around it change their colors before pando and so you end up with this sharp relief where pando is still vibrant and green but everything around it's changed because pando's on its own clock and the other trees are on their clock and so you can clearly see pando operating as a single organism right but in terms of the color with pando color does play a role in how you could do leaf morphology but not on this scale. On this scale, what you really have to see is differentiation of clones throughout a body of clones, right? Um, Pando's leaves in particular, they don't turn red. They tend to go from like a you know bright lime green in spring when they first come out to a rich dark green in June, July when it sends out its blooms of leaves. And then they will shift to kind of a you know begin to go gold green to gold and then they'll get like a deep gold color and then of course they'll desiccate and turn you know like really dark umber brown whereas some of the trees around pando they will have some different color variation and that's genetically driven it's also chemically driven so like in a drought year you may see color variation you don't see in other years. Did I answer your question there, Steve? Um, yeah, I think. I just, this, so they drain the nutrients that go down mm -hmm. to the roots. Okay, then is it the tannins that's left behind that, that makes the color? Tannins um, are typically more to do with the woody structure. Really, you're talking about 
Um, I can get you the specific technical term, but what you're talking about is, I believe it's anthracycin. Let me double check that really quick. So there's a couple of chemicals. Yeah, I wasn't trying to get down too deep. Mostly, I've heard tannins mentioned in uh, winemaking, so I was. <laughs> yeah, well, tannins. Well, the reason that that tannins are present in in wine and winemaking is that it it, it 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 naturally occurs in plant material, right? And so, when you're talking about leaf color, for example, anthocyanins and uh, carotenoids give you red color. Carotenoids give you orange color. Carotenoids are also in carrots, for example. Carotenoids and flavonoids give you more green colors. And then, of course, the presence of chlorophyll gives you the green color in, you know, leaf material during peak, like peak uh, growth, regeneration, summer, basically. So can I ask about um, threats to Pando? Threats to Pando, yeah. Uh, what do you want to zero in on? There's there's a lot of different domains and issues that we have to address. When you get up to Great Basin and you walk through there, I think there's names carved in there with dates of like 1950s. Is that hurting the trees? A couple of things here, one cultural and a couple of other cultural notes, but really uh, notes as it, as it applies to taking care of Pando. First, there's a whole class of folk art. Basculus, I believe is the term. I may be saying that wrong, but it refers to the Basque people who were some of the earliest folks in, in these parts of Utah. And indeed, they would carve signs and signals in the tree to signal other herders this is where I'm at or something happened here. And that's a whole class of, of art. They did all kinds of things. It wasn't just rote messages, you know, it wasn't like newspaper rocks or anything. There was a lot going on. There is that element where people have carved on trees just like they do on stone. As it relates to Pando in specific, um, the bark of aspen trees is not particularly thick. And so if you carve in an aspen tree, if you carve in one of Pando's estimated 47,000 stems, it opens it up to disease. And so we have a campaign that Friends of Pando started this year, and indeed we put signage up and in and around the tree to this effect. If you carve, Pando will starve. And, and what's going on there is that once you carve in the body, if that doesn't heal properly, it becomes more disease prone. And what typically happens is, is that the whole time that the tree, if it does get diseased, fungal infections, bacterial infections, you got to remember that each of those estimated 47,000 stems is connected uh, by that massive root system could span 12,000 miles if laid end to end. And so that particular stem is not producing the way that it was if, if it had been unharmed. So we say if you carve pendle star, because what happens is that particular stem becomes less productive, then that stem gets diseased. And pretty much the only way to deal with plant diseases in Aspen. There's there's quite a few that are common to Aspen and indeed Pando has a little bit of all of those diseases. Really the only thing you can do is coppice that or cut it down to the, the floor of the forest and then that will stimulate regeneration, the hormone process that's happening in the roots that it'll send up a genetically identical stem. And so we discourage folks from carving in Pando because it's almost all the guaranteed that that particular stem, it will be less productive, thus starving out the larger tree. 
and almost inevitably it's going to get cut down because that's the only way you can control disease that we know of today. Yeah, how interesting. So it's not affecting that particular, well, it's affecting that particular stem, but overall it affects the overall tree. Indeed, and, and, and interesting too that there's a whole cultural art form around tree carving that's kind of been maintained in this you know, mutilated form, aspen produce, an aspen tree, an acre of aspen, whether clone or not, can produce between 900 pounds and 2,000 pounds of biomass per year. And so it's interesting that there's this cultural tradition of tree carving that's been maintained throughout these generations. But I would like to think that those folks that were doing it to as as stewards of the land at least at the time or at least involved in the care of trees in a different way because they did want all that great forage right um, we're not doing it at the rate that we see with pando so we have this campaign if you carve pando will starve we're going to beat that drum a little bit louder next year and it's it's really kind of one of those things where on the one hand, if you don't know and you wouldn't know, you would think it was normal based on how many people carve in the tree. But on the other hand, if you look at it from the point of view of what needs to happen to take care of the tree in the long term, there's, of course, a lot more work that has to be done. Yeah, The other area there to touch on, if you wouldn't mind, is climate change. We don't have any studies right now that talk about the relationship between climate change and the Fish Lake Basin. We have some studies that offer some tantalizing insights about potential relationships, but conversely, we know from historical records that Pando has survived droughts that have drove out all human activity going back to indigenous times. And Pando's in a higher elevation. Pando starts right around 9,000 feet and it goes up to 9,200 feet. And so a lot of what goes on with Pando as it relates to water, precipitation water uh, is really locked up in snow, right? But then there's another factor, and, and we're working on some research here, hydrologic studies. Pando rests about 0.4 miles from the edge of Fish Lake. Fish Lake is the largest natural mountain freshwater lake in the state of utah and fish lake is mainly fed 70 percent of the water uh that that fills fish lake is comes from springs and so there's a tantalizing clue there about how did pando survive droughts how did pando manage things that kind of wiped out everything else and drove out humans and it's very possible that with Pando being in this graben, in this basin, literally a catchment for water, that that gave it some advantages. And it might explain why we've had this tree as long as we have, because it may be able to tap into water sources. We we don't even have a map of that today, but it's very likely that Pando's tapping into water sources we don't fully understand yet, because an inch of rain falling on Pando is, oh, uh, let's see two million gallons of water pando protects about 86 million gallons of water a year 
And so that strongly suggests that the water table, the basin, there's some advantage there with the hydrology of Pando's homeland that has helped sustain the tree because indeed there have been severe droughts that have lasted decades, centuries. In fact, we're coming out of a drought right now that seemed to point pretty strongly that we would expect Pando to fare better during climate change, at least based on availability of water. This is so interesting. I'm learning so much about Pando. But I'm going to ask some art questions now. You're a photographer, but you're also involved in other artistic endeavors. Would you like to tell our listeners what, what else you do? Right now, really just kind of focused on photography. I have a couple of photographic series that I'm working on. Work is underway on the Panda Photographic Survey to date. Using those 360 cameras we talked about, we've published 40 acres of Panda's landmass in 360. That was captured rigorously down to the centimeter level, meaning scientists could go back and photograph any one of 8,542 locations again and again over time to see how Pando changes over time and inform policy and management decisions. I have another series of works that I'm doing and you probably wouldn't be surprised that I'm using technologies in other ways. I have a series called Sequoia Obscura and that is a series focused on the hidden harbors of life in sequoia coastal redwood trees uh, sequoia sempervirens and for that i developed these methods around astrophotography and and lighting to kind of get into the hidden heart of these coastal redwood trees to to bring back uh, imagery of all the colorful harbors of life that you find in those trees I have a series of prints, uh, rubbings, where I'm from in Ohio, we call them graveyard rubbings, but basically using this specialized Japanese rice paper and these sort of linoleum oil crayons, I gently wrap the paper around the face of any one of Pando's 40,000 stems, and I do rubbings of the face of the tree at diameter. And so if you scan that, and invert it uh, using Photoshop, you get an exact kind of almost uh, duplicate of of that specific stem. And a lot of people are surprised to learn all of these stems are genetically identical, but why do they look different place to place in the tree? And that's because trees are following the sunlight. They, they will, even genetically identical trees will have variation in, in bark and branch patterns and where they turn towards the sun and away from the sun, they'll have scars, things like that. And so the series of prints, which are handmade prints, uh, literally doing rubbings of the the different faces of each of these forty over 40,000 stems. I've been working on that for a couple of years. The tentative title for that series is the Regeneration Series, and it's all about geocaching and understanding complexity in singular environments. And so Pando's genetically identical, but it has all of this variation within it, um, helping people understand that that variation is part of what's happening at a really hyper-local level in that exact part of the tree. I ran a publishing house for many years when I was younger, kind of an avant-garde community media co-op. I was a performance artist when I was much, much younger, Um, got invited to perform at Lollapalooza. This is in my teens and 20s. I've done visual art. I don't paint so much anymore. do a lot of multimedia work as well, but 
The crux of my work going back to 2017 has been photography and tree related. your definition of creativity? Early on in my creative life, I discovered the work of Jean de Buffet, and through my experience with his works, I had a friend that worked at the National Gallery, and I got to see one of his large-scale works in person. It was done with mud and hay and straw, and of course, by way of legend, he used to go out to sanatorium, you know, sanitariums and make artwork with people who who were dealing with mental health issues and the thing i really took away from his work and and other work i found is creativity is innate um it's instinctual really i don't i don't know if there's a better argument for the need for art or why art exists other than it's something innate to us to create and and very likely instinctual that we create things I'm part of nature. I'm not outside of it. So it's kind of hard to uh, pretend that there's some grand objective in my case anyway, especially minding that I maintain that, that to create things is innate and, and to want to make art is instinctual. You wrote that you don't really believe in the photographic print. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, in my career, I've seen the transition from the print world to the internet and the print world here could refer to art prints or newspapers magazines advertisements bill billboards to the internet and what's really interesting to me because i do have background in in printmaking and design is that if, if you're going to go buy a piece of work for example you know it used to be you would see that that print was one of 200 and those earlier prints were favored over later prints and it's interesting to me you know maybe folks within the art world understand this but a lot of folks outside of it don't why did you want the first print out of 200 well because the prints were made using metal plates and they were created using inks and things like that that were not as good as what we have today so the very first print the hot press, the, the cold press print was the most definitive print. And by the time you got to 200, the plate had wore down due to friction creating the prints. And so that one of 200 to the 199 to 200 is how they created value, how they created scarcity. We live in a digital world now, and we live in a place where we can share information in a way that's not physically tied to the original creation. And so from a photographic point of view, with my work, I do create prints, but I don't use that false scarcity model. And that way I don't believe in the photographic print. The other way that I don't believe in the photographic print is that in selling my own personal works, the thing that actually makes a work valuable today, because we generally have a core digital artifact is who owns the copyright when someone dies and so in the sale of my works something that folks can do with my with my special series is they can buy a print that will be signed but they also have an opportunity to buy what i call death rights and what that means is that when i'm no longer here 
they would have copyrights to go and reproduce the images they see fit. That is actually what's really valuable in the print and publishing world today is who owns those rights long term. It's no longer who has one of 200. That's limited by the person and the time that they're alive. It's who has the right to reproduce that over time that's actually more valuable in today's market. That's a really interesting question. Lance, I'll just say two words, AI. I guess that's not two words. I guess that's two letters. You want to talk about letters, AI. AI? AI is really interesting to me as somebody, I used to work uh, in a lab called the Media Interface and Network Design Lab at Ohio State. That lab was headed up by Dr. Prabhu David. And what's interesting to me about AI and its potential is that it can only be as good as what we think representation is. And so I think AI is going to force us into some questions about representation that we didn't really have to confront before. And so it's exciting to me that we're going to have to have a more robust conversation about the figurative and the explicit. It's also interesting to me, you know, with the uh, Hollywood actor strike more recently, and we're seeing other currents, family were union stewards going back to Ohio when I was a young boy. It's interesting to me that one of the things they demanded was that AI cannot be used. You can't purchase the AI rights to somebody's likeness and resell it or create copies of copies of copies the way that um, Hollywood and some of the VFX labs that work in kind of Hollywood writ large would like to do to, to lower production costs. Interestingly, there's a really good film, and I don't feel like it ever got the traction that it deserved, called The Congress some years ago. And I felt like it encapsulated what the Hollywood writers and actors strike talks about is that if there is a way to kind of sell a likeness in perpetuity and that person never has to work again, what are the implications for them? What, what's real about them and their work? And so, again, we have some really unique challenges around representation. It's going to spur arguments about what does a green field mean? You know, um, if you asked a Windows user, you know, Microsoft Windows user, what a green field meant, you know, in 1998, you'd have that famous photo of the rolling green hills, right? You know, but you ask an AI that today, is it going to be pastoral? Is it going to be a field of things we can eat or grow? Or is it going to be a wilderness area? Even wilderness would be in question there. So AI, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. And Adobe started some programs. Of course, Adobe is based in part in Utah, but Adobe started a program called the Content Authenticity Initiative. It'll be curious to see what they will do to help protect artist rights, because um, a lot of these AI systems, and I had a moment to, to interface with some of these folks when I, I worked at Microsoft at one point, they're trained on things that are out in the wild, right? They're like robots that are sent out, find things that are green, find things that are green that are defined as field, produce green field, right? And so all of these representations in, in human culture are going to come into that larger conversation of what's real and what's not. And I, I think it'll be exciting in a good way because it'll force us to deal with representation in some other areas that we just not have content with at, at this point. If you could go back in time 
in the art world, where would you go and why? Oh, that's a good one. You know, there's there's a couple of places. One that really strikes me is there is a book called Virtual Art, and it's sort of a history of virtual art. And in that book, the writer talks about some of these early panoramas like you find in Greece, right, where there's sort of this anteroom and the walls are shaped in such a way to give you this immersive feeling. It would have been interesting to talk to the person that painted that panorama. Indeed, we still have panoramas today. Uh, they're found in castles throughout Europe, the medieval era. You know, and the idea is that it's sort of an immersive art experience. So it would have been interesting to talk to at least those people and say, hmm, who asked for this and why and what is it supposed to represent? Because 360 photography and 360 art have come up again and again throughout history. We're we're on the third or fourth cycle. So it would have been interesting to, to talk to those people there in Greece. Growl. G-R-A-U, Virtual Art is the book, if, if your listeners would like to hear more. Um, I would have also liked to have met this guy named Charles K. Charles K. did work on Pando in the 90s, working with the Forest Service and the ecologists that were staffing the Forest Service, Fish Lake National Forest at that time. And he replicated um the work of PAL expedition, which included photographing sites throughout the fish lake, which itself would have included Pando in a time before we even knew it existed. It would have been great to get to meet Charles K. As I understand it, he is no longer living or no longer answering calls, which is similar, but he did some critical photographic work. As far as just visual art, I think it would have been interesting to have met Guy Debord of the Situationist. I think it would have been interesting to have met Franz von Stuck and Yves Klein. It would have been interesting to have met William Blake, Jean-Michel Basquiat, or Robinson Jeffers. I would have loved to have met uh, Evgeny Yevtushenko. His poem, Zima Junction, is one of my all-time favorite poems. Um, the list goes on. There's so many that I, I do have some burning questions, but that's what great art does, right? It, it gives you questions. It gives you cultural frameworks to understand and experience things. So I don't know. I feel like I could talk about this part all day. Well, Lance, before we ask the last question, I wanted to ask you again to tell us your studio website. It's a, you can follow Lance's journey and learn more about your work. Where is that studio what? Studio4760north.com. Thank you. I was having a little trouble reading that, so I wanted to make sure we got that correct. Um, our last question, and this has been a fascinating interview. Oh, my gosh, Steve, hasn't it? Yeah, we could talk to him for hours. We now. could. Our last question is, what has inspired you this week? You know, I'm glad you asked because in the initial little thing you sent over to me, I was going over that. and um, That was a year and a half ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so a different that, week. That's <laughs> very much a different week. Um <laughs> It, I just want to say to you all, it was fun to kind of look at the, some of the questions, you know, to help me get ready for this. Um, the work of sound artist Jeff Rice, uh, Jeff developed this whole audio program called the Pando Suite. And so I, I, I listen to that just about every day. Finishing up a book about this guy named Richard St. Barbie Baker and the book is called Man of the Trees, and, and he's widely regarded as one of the first 
global conservationist with a focus on forestry. Paul Hanley wrote the book, Man of the Trees. More than that, just thinking about music lately quite a bit because I'm at that part where I'm going to go heads down so we can get more of the 360 imagery from the Pando Photographic Survey published so scientists can use it. And so I'm excited. I'm still excited about the work of an artist named Hooray for the Riff Raff. She has a new album out that she characterizes Echo Punk, and I just thought that was really striking, and it really excites me that her generation is thinking like that. I recently had a chance to go see an Australian band named The Church, and they have a new album out called The Hypnagogue. Really striking, amazing live show. Uh, some friends back east just released an album, band called The Idle Airs. This is folks I cut my teeth with in, in the southwestern Ohio arts community years ago. Really stood out. Felice Brothers stood out to me. And then um, The Phantom, which kind of, I don't know if y'all know the band, The Cramps. They were from Akron, Ohio. But The Phantom and that old, heady rock and roll kind of music really has stood out to me this week. Other than that, I did just see the uh, movie about Salvador Dali with uh, Ben Kingsley. And I, I thought they did a really great job of kind of breaking through some of the mythologies about artists and famous artists. It's always good to see that. You know, it's hard enough to try to make money or do anything as an artist from an industry point of view. You know, the mythologies that you can only do it by suffering and and spending all your time alone, you know, uh, wrapped in apparently otherwise cacophonous inspiration. That, that doesn't really help. Most artists are working with a lot of different people, and I thought they did a good job in that movie of kind of talking about all the folks that it takes to create work that's meaningful to you and, and can communicate something about community life or your time. I have that on my list of movies to watch now. Thank you. <laughs> One other thing, I while we're talking about movies, because I hadn't really thought about it, there's a book out now called Among the Ancients by um, Anthony Fredericks. He interviewed me and a bunch of folks that are doing research on trees. For, so for the tree nerds, check that out. The other thing, it's a film called A Branch of Us. That is done by Billy Keneally of Denver Botanic Garden. And that film really touches on all the ways superlative and non-superlative trees touch our lives. And Billy did a really great job with that. It's a labor of love. He's He's doing really exciting work in, in terms of uh, making documentary work around trees and botany and plant protection and care exciting and interesting. And so I, I would throw that in. I've actually watched that a few times the past couple of weeks and in concert with reading Anthony Frederick's book. Lance, we really appreciate this. I know it's been a long time coming. The Panda Forest just grows and is greater. And I, I, I should end with the one story I have, and I think I told you, um, when mm -hmm. I was artist in residence at Capitol Reef National Park, yeah. and I was doing a, um, a, a campfire thing talking at the amphitheater down there. And um, I asked, one of the things I, I would start everyone with, tell me an amazing fact of nature. And there was always a ranger there with with me and I clued them in so they would give me one awe-inspiring fact of nature. And then I asked the audience and there's about, I think they said 99 people there that night and everybody, all the adults sat on their hands and this one little girl, she put her hand up 
and then she was sitting on her dad's knee, and I went over there. He didn't prompt her or anything because I would have seen that. And I put mm-hmm. the the microphone up to her, and she told me there's a forest here that all has the same DNA. As I picked myself up off the ground, I said, you're talking about the Pando Forest, and I love the Pando Forest, and that kid's going to be president of the United States one day. <laughs> Maybe not if they're smart. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it amazing? You know, it's like I think of it as almost like a time of first contact and that can both be positive or negative. But isn't it amazing? We live in this time of discovery with Pando. You know, it was first discovered in 76, wasn't verified till 2008. And just the sense of wonder and awe and the fact that it absolutely upends everything we think about trees and what trees can be and what they can mean. It's refreshing after kind of a dark, weird period where, um, you know, trees I've noticed come into and out of fashion, but it seems like Pando never does because it's just so, it radically shifts our perspective. So I think you're right. She probably will be president and I hope if she is, she'll She'll take whatever measures she can to help take care of Pando for future generations. And I want to thank you all. You know, every time that, that we have an opportunity to to get out there and share our stories and share ideas about Pando, it always leads to good things. So thanks for all y'all do. And being patient with me is uh, some of my answers are probably a little bit long and, and intricate, but I, oh, I we, appreciate we love that. <laughs> all right. All thank, right. Well, thank you all. Thank, thank you, Lance. You, Lance. Bye-bye. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.